Okay, so we are live with another episode of Think Small, Do Big. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Joe Siciliano. How are you, sir? Hey, Osama. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we go anywhere, before we start talking, getting into the mind of a genius, how, <laughs> how do we talk about your story? So tell us about yourself, how, how you started in the real estate game, and how did you end up at Compass? I am. So I'm um, a longtime real estate broker. Um, uh, nowadays, it's more common to see someone come out of college or start in the business as a real estate broker fairly new or in one of their first jobs, if not their first job. But over 25 years ago, when I did it, it was not that common. Most of the people that get into the real estate business end up doing it as a second or third career. But I graduated from school. I thought it was a great opportunity to get into a business that was had no ceiling um, to it. And I jumped right in. It took forever to learn how to do the business. I don't think I would do it the same way today as I did before. I can imagine. I, did. I can imagine having no web browsers. No, well. <laughs> like, I can imagine not having my phone and not pulling up maps and going to a showing. Because even then it's sometimes problematic. Yes, it, is. it really was quite... It's amazing to, to see what's happened in... 25 plus years, even what's happened in the last five years. But yeah, no internet back then. Literally, that was like really no internet. We were faxing listings to our clients. That's how, that's how, that's how, uh, um, how challenging it was from a, from a technology standpoint. And things grew like crazy. But I got into the business because, frankly, I didn't have, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I did like real estate. I met a guy who came to the school to interview, uh, basically recruit college uh, college graduates, which wasn't all that popular back then either, and I dove right in. Initially, I started what I thought was going to be a commercial broker. So I was calling, um, back then we would call on cold call banks and try to do re REO properties or distressed properties back then. Um, I learned a ton. I wasn't very good at it, frankly. I, I did okay, but it was really challenging. I didn't take advantage of my personal sphere as much as I was trying to get out there. And then in about uh, 1995, I switched to residential and it was the greatest thing going because I again I was able to take advantage of my personal sphere of influence and everybody that I knew that was looking to buy or sell homes or rent apartments and it was much more it was a much better fit for for someone like myself so let's just get straight into it you've been with compass how long um, since we opened in Chicago, which was uh, Thanksgiving of 2017, so a little over two years we've been here. And did you know about Compass before you joined them? I did. So I had been, the previous firm I was with was with a local co-op banker um, uh, firm, which is actually um, an NRT-owned firm. Um, and we knew about Compass. We knew they were coming to town because they had already been making quite a splash in California back, probably going back three or four years now, we knew about them. Um, at that time, they weren't as, uh, um, uh, you know, it's been that ravished or that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They weren't growing at the speed that they have in the last couple of years, but they were growing. I mean, they came out of New York. Anyway, we knew they were coming to town eventually. So we were kind of prepared for them to do it. Um, I certainly didn't seek them out and think like, oh, I'm going to jump ship right away. But when they came to town and I um, was approached by, by the firm... I was really curious because, unfortunately, the real estate business in general 
really lagged behind the rest of the of the world as far as the different industries and and owning technology and really taking advantage of that to be much more efficient than what we do. We really were a dinosaur. I really yeah, 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 for sure. There's like, <clears throat> I first learned of Soho, uh, sorry, Compass, when I was in Soho House in New York. Yeah. And I was sitting at the pool and this girl next to me had MLS sheets or like in New York, there were no MLS, she was just looking at the real estate. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm in real estate too, but I'm in Chicago. And I'm like, where do you work? She's like, oh, this leasing company called Compass. I was like, leasing company called Compass? I have never heard of that company. And this is like five, six years ago. Yeah. And now, six years later, it's become one of the greatest companies in real estate in the shortest period of time that has ever existed. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Is it because of the fact that it has capital and money or people that raised it? Or is it the people that grew it? Or is it the agents that it successfully have brought in? What is the secret sauce of you getting so big within that short period of time when there are titans that existed for decades? Mm-hmm. I think the short answer is they, they meaning those that are running the company and the ones that joined on, they listened to the, the agents and realized there was a significant opportunity that has not been met by any of these other long-standing dinosaur firms. So, for instance, you mentioned leasing. They opened as Urban Compass um, about eight years or nine years ago in New York City because in New York City, the rental business is, is obviously a big part of the part of the big chunk of the real estate business in general. Yeah, that was where the money was, but they were able to um, pivot, as it were, in the uh, cool uh, language that uh, that startup firm. They were able to pivot multiple times over the course of the last nine years or so because they realized they started to realize what was missing, which was support of the agents that allowed them to be more efficient at what they did, be better at what they did, and not have them sort of locked down in, you know, uh, policies and corporate structure and really saying, hey, let's just give them the, the, the platform that it makes, allows them to work easier. It was really more, li- and honestly, because I've been in this business a long time and yeah. different firms are with, it really comes down to b- being willing to ask a lot of questions of the brokers that already work for us and ask them questions and, and, and listen to them. Not just listen to them blindly because oh, we want to make them happy, but listen to them. What would be better? What could we do better that it would allow you to be better at what you do, whether from a prospecting standpoint, marketing yourself, marketing your property, what could we do to make you better, make it easier for you, and then we listen and we try to basically develop things or uh, incorporate things that are going to make that happen. And really it was listening more than anything else. So I, I get this question all the time from new people interested in real estate, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm still young and I have friends that have siblings that are younger, graduating, that think of real estate specifically as million-dollar listing. Yep. They literally, the way I did it, yep. you know how I got in, right? Yep. One day I turned on the show Bravo, and I said, you know what? This is amazing. Like, I, I need to do this. Like, I, I, I can sell a house. Like, yeah. I could put on a suit. Then I came Three or in. four meetings, and you're like, you sold a million-dollar house. It's easy. But it is not that way. Yeah. Once you come into real estate, you find out, like, it's extremely, extremely difficult business, especially when you don't know how anything works. Yeah. I remember my first sale... I don't even remember how I did it. Like, I remember getting a call saying, hey, do you want to do a final walk? And I was like, what's a final walk? Like, there is structure that we don't learn. 
unless we join a team or unless we have somebody like a mentor. Yeah. So I realized that Compass is one of the few companies that would not allow a new broker to come in because A, it already doesn't want to teach, or B, is it based on the fact that they want veterans that know what they're doing and they have certain set of standards, or C, they're encouraging for these younger agents to automatically just join a team. I would say it's a combination of B and C. It doesn't come from a position of arrogance like we don't want new agents because we don't want them straight away. It's because we want our resources, time and money and, and energy, we want to go into improving um, your business. If you've got the basics down, yeah, we want to help you make a business plan, grow your business, add team members if that's the case or whatever. But again, it doesn't come from a place of arrogance. It just... When you, when you hire brand new, brand new people as individual principal agents, uh, the resources that go into that to teach them the business are significant, financial yeah. and education. And unfortunately, the burnout rate is really, really high. I mean, really high. Like, there's, it's, you know, to take the, take the exam to get a license in the state of Illinois, is fa- the, the, the barrier of entry is fairly low. You take the exam, you get licensed, you go join a firm, like, I'm ready for business. Yeah. But to get you from that, as you just mentioned, to actually being able to help people buy and sell houses is a significant, you know, um, uh, there's a lot much more education that goes in there. So to be, to be down in the weeds with, with agents to teach them that, it just, it just it takes a lot of time. And it's fairly, the, the return is not that great because 50% or more will just bail out in six months or 12 months. Because they probably haven't made any money. Right. They did probably one deal and then they realized that, okay, my core group of people or my book club or my gym class, that one that mm-hmm. I play basketball in, none of those people are buying or selling. Right. How am I going to get business? Or you haven't been able to um, make them feel comfortable enough to hire you in, a, in one of the most significant transactions of their lives because, hey, you're a great guy, Osama, but... You just started. I know for a fact you just started because you told me you did. Yeah. So you don't know what you're doing. So you got to build that. So or you used to work change. with me last week, yeah. and now you're selling me a exactly. house, which is probably the biggest decision I'm going to make and the most money that I'll ever mm-hmm. use. Why would I use you? I had that problem in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. But I did have somebody over me that taught me everything, a guy named Ryan Pruitt, mm-hmm. who was like doing probably a great job in real estate right now. Yeah. But one thing I realized is that when I came in, I was lucky because I just graduated. So I literally got in, I traveled for a little bit, and I decided I want to go into real estate. I had that little comfort of being around home, mom and dad, mm-hmm. and not that many savings, but I didn't have savings because they would give me like money or I'll have some savings. But I see a lot of people when they make that change, especially in real estate, you need to have at least six months worth of money or capital or any income in your bank account because you're not going to get any money out of it as well. And then you probably have to spend more money on marketing. Yeah, I mean, that, you're right. You do have to, you have to, six months is a good target to think you're not going to get paid sometime. Now, granted, if you jump in, you got a really good chance of doing something in three months or, or, or so. But six months is a good target to have something uh, built up and to get ready to start. But what you just alluded to was was kind of your, your, C, your C answer, which was, if you work with a mentor, whether you join a team formally or not, but you work with a mentor of some some type, that mentor or team leader can help you be successful right away. So if you said, hey, um, you know, my buddy from the gym 
is going to buy a new condo. He knows I'm new to the business. If I walk in and say, hey, I know you know I'm new to the business. That's why I brought in my veteran partner, yeah. Ryan Pruitt. Yeah. And together, we're going to help you. We're going to help you get your new condo. Ryan's been in the business for you know 10 years, yeah. whatever the deal is. And I'm going to work with it. Together, we're going to help you. Set. So you can't be greedy at the beginning. you got to share your commissions with somebody else in order to win that business and, 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 and become that expert to your individual sphere of influence. So over time, you, you become the, the, the guy or the girl that they trust in to do the transaction on your own. Recently, I've been seeing a lot of trends. And I don't think it used to exist. A lot of teams now exist because mm-hmm. back in the day, it was mostly individuals or they'll have an assistant or somebody that would do a showing. Is it, is it good to have a team of 20 people right now just because I can bring in people mm-hmm. and have something? Or it could actually hurt you because sometimes your name, because if they don't do a good job and they're not around you that often mm-hmm. and they don't learn from you, they just don't care and they're just under an umbrella. That's right. I think what you're getting at is if you are... Um, if you have enough business as a team and are structured enough to to um, be able to support 20 people, yeah. then that's amazing. But I always tell agents that have been around for a while that are interested in growing their team, is don't just do it to have headcount. Yeah. And and say, okay, I'll bring on so-and-so. It doesn't cost me. Firms have made this mistake in the past, ones that I've worked for even, where they're like, hey, I'll bring on another person. If they are successful, I'll, 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 I'll take a little piece on right. the top from them and every time. Not, then I don't care because it doesn't, quote unquote, cost me any money. But it always costs you because if you're taking any time whatsoever to help that agent use your time, resource of time to help them build their business and grow their business and teach them how to write contracts and all that kind of stuff, it's taking time away from your own business. Yeah. So, and then if you do the opposite, which is bring them on board and don't teach them anything, you're not doing them justice anyway. So all it does is, is mess up your numbers. So, you definitely should not grow a team just for the sake of growing it. I tell everybody, you should have a mutual benefit. The reason you are growing your team is because, hey, either A, I am so overwhelmed with my with my business, I have more leads than I can do with, I have so many listings that need to be serviced open house-wise or showing-wise that I need to bring a team member on that, that I trust that I can train to do it my way and do that. That's got to come from the principal. The team member has to um, have also get a commitment from the team leader yeah. that that team leader is going to give them the mentorship and or leads and or training and or other resources, maybe tapping into their uh, administrative uh, team and tap into their structure so that, hey, I'm, I'm a new agent um, or new rate or agent and I got some business going on, but I don't have, a, I don't have enough resources to hire a, an assistant, an administrative assistant that sets up my showings and whatever. But if I join this team yeah. and I give up a little piece of my commission to my team leader and I can tap I can have all the resources from this person and on top get some more business because he or she is going to provide it for me. Yes, and that's why it makes so much more sense for a lot of people to do it that way. But again, it's got to be, a, it's got to be mutually beneficial to both team leader and team member, not just a one-way So here's, here's another question I've always had right now. I have a, a group called Urban L&L. stands for Latitude and Longitude. I had opportunity to bring on many people on team, but I'm very selective because I want to bring on people that are opposite of me, that could take over a certain sector of my business that I'm not good at, right? Because you want to diversify your portfolio, 
with people that could be great. If I'm a city person, and one day I'm going to bring somebody from the suburbs because mm-hmm. I don't do anything there. I'm not going to do be great there. I would not know where's the next school district or anything in there. So you got to be acknowledging the fact that you got to be working smarter, not harder. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, content is key today. Uh, reason we're doing this podcast is so other people can listen to it and then they'll know that I'm in this business or send out or write journals or have YouTube videos. But being in the past, I've noticed a lot of the big boy names are still their names. So let's just say I am Henry Group, okay, for an example. Mm-hmm. And Henry Group, Henry goes on a trip for a month or two or something, let's just say for, to Bali. Most people are going to be dependent on him even though there's 10 people underneath him. Yeah. So is it good in the future? And we live in the millennial era, which is all about branding, yeah. right? Do you think it's better to create a group that's a brand name? Something like what I've done? Or do you think if in the future when you're doing it, you can make two partners come together and make that team? Because I feel like that's, being, that's making a mistake, especially when you bring in a team. Because I can hide behind a brand name. They won't know who it is. Right. Instead of always saying that, where is Henry? I need to talk to Henry. Right. So what do you think should be the case now? And what do you think it's going? I think, I think it is going towards having a more, um, call it not generic, but like a... A, a name that's not personal name specific. Yeah, I think that is where it's going. But to answer, I don't. It's a hard question to answer because it, 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 they both can work. One of the reasons that people, and again, a little bit older, but one of the reasons that um, you can be a successful real estate broker is because it's tied to your name. If you have done a great job as Henry, as you mentioned, sure. Let's say Henry Smith. If you're Henry Smith and you've done a great job of building your business because you're a really good real estate broker and you've given amazing consumer um, uh, experience to your clients, they want Henry. Yeah. Of course. It's almost like, but then you're alluding to that, okay, well, Henry's in Bali right now. Yeah. What what am I going to do? Or if Henry wants to grow his business to a point where he can either have multiple people grow larger or whatever and then ultimately maybe retire to Bali and hand off his his business to somebody else, it's hard to hand off Henry because he is the name and the brand. gone. The challenge with that is when you first started, he probably didn't think about that. Sure. You know, he probably didn't think about it that ultimately everyone would pass this off or whatever because he was Henry Inc. I think um, many people are very happy to have it be their personal name with team members and let it be the team and let and let it be the team name but if it's early enough in your career like you are and you know for a fact that you're trying to grow this thing to maybe have an extension in the northwest suburbs an extension in the southwest suburbs an extension in the gold, gold coast or the the north shore and you're going to call it urban lnl then good for you you're like you're targeting that's your business plan that's your model and you're going to grow to that then you're set up for it that way they won't always be asking for just Osama all the time because they know for a fact, oh, by the way, Mr. and Mrs. Potential Seller, here's how we at L&L do our business. Someone from uh, the team that, that, that specializes in the northwest suburbs um, is going to be working with you directly. And if you tell them that's how you run your business, they'll believe you because you've already had some success as that, that Yeah, setup. I feel like in today's world, a lot of people, especially millennials, they don't want to call and talk they don't want to reach a person. They want to reach a brand. 
right? Like if I can sit behind my computer and use the brand name Urban l and send out my information, I'm more comfortable because it's an entity. Mm-hmm. If I send it to, let's just say, Joe, if I'm emailing Joe, I'm like a little scared. I don't want to send my information. Like people feel that way. Mm-hmm. Even I would feel that way if I'm getting a health quote. I, I would I'd rather send to a company than a person because it's just we want, we're so not communicative anymore. Like mm-hmm. when was the last time people called? They just don't call anymore. They're like, just text me. Or just message me. They want to hide behind screens and things. So, like, another question is, what's the best marketing? Old school that still works and new school that people aren't doing that would still work. Because I'm still bad at open houses. But I've been hosting some and I've been seeing a lot of people that are unrepresentative. And I've been seeing firsthand that that's a good possibility. But if I don't have any business right now, what's the couple of things that you think that the old school way of you've seen in the last decade or two that still works and people are just not even using most of it is it still cold calling is it am i getting a list or is it because i feel like cold calling is a dead breed no. in my opinion i think cold calling is and i did it especially again many people did that your chance of success at a cold call are not very good because they don't have any relationship they have no idea who you are and they don't want to talk but also think about that when you talk about spending lots of money on email marketing or whatever. Your, ch- your chance of success there are also really low. Mm-hmm. Not to say you shouldn't do that to, to, to create a presence, but you're not going to get a lot of direct response saying, oh, this is a really neat looking um, email blast. I'm going to call I'm going to call them. Yeah. It's a combination of all those things. So to back about you, what you said, you, be, you were telling me, if I was your coach or if I was your thing, you're not comfortable having that live communication with somebody. You're, you're, you said that we, as, as millennials, as the consumer, might not want to interact with you. But yeah. I think, ultimately, the one common denominator that we feel very strongly, especially at Compass, is that it's still a relationship business. At the end of the day, when it's time to sign a contract one way or the other, it's the person with the closest or the strongest relationship with the ultimate buyer or seller is the one that they're going to feel comfortable with. So at some point in this relationship, whether it's that very first email, post, or whatever, at some point you have to reach out and actually have a human conversation with them because it's just so hard to, um, to engage with somebody digitally. It just is. So once you cross that boundary, for instance, at an open house, sure, that's your first opportunity to um, create this relationship with this person where they start to trust you. I think open houses inherently are the people that go to open houses typically come in with a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of blockade yeah they, they don't want you to come you know to, to like to, to jump all over and say when are you moving you know they, there's all these like questions how when do you have to when are you moving when do you have to move yeah you're working with a real estate broker all these things you got to kind of fear your way out but you do have to be become good at that and the way to come become good at that is practice do role playing with with guys like myself or somebody else on your team, but there is a there is a nuance to that. You have to make them feel comfortable and trust that you know what you're talking about, not just for the seller that you're representing that day, but ultimately for them if they're not looking. You got to break through because it's there's too much there's too much chatter out there. There's, I, there's too much um, digital garbage out there. And, you got to break through. And this is what I was actually just going to get to. So of course it was my open house, so I knew all the information. But when I was younger, I would not know the floors. I would not know the type of windows. I've done, I didn't even know the size of the lot. Mm-hmm. So I had a guy come in two weeks ago, and 
this was like one of the best compliments in a way that I didn't even understand because I don't push it. I don't ask what's your moving date because they're here for a reason. They want to move. Eventually, you want to talk about what brings you up today, you know, why you're here, what's going on, like how, where do you live, like mm-hmm. all that questions. So he kept on asking me questions and then like halfway through the tour, he stops, he turns around, he's like, I'm not going to lie, I've gone to many open houses and they never have answers to any of my questions. It's not because they usually say I'm hosting it for somebody or they usually say, let me get back to you. And it's like, it's your job to know these things. If mm-hmm. you don't know it, why would I ever use you? So you can lose a client based on answers that you don't even have. So when he was asking me, he was like, listen, like you were, you, are you the developer? I'm like, no, but I, it's my job to represent the developer to make sure that I sell these things. Yeah. And when he was asking me about the floors, the design, the cabinets, like the windows, is it dual-sided? How much is it going to be, like, if, if there's anything between the cement, is there, like, wood? Like, is there sound barriers? Yeah. Like, what's going on? I kept on just explaining as I was going, and he was like, I would use you to purchase something because you're knowledgeable enough to represent me. You just, you just basically spelled out how you have success. Is that you have to be the you have to be the expert wherever you are. If you're hosting an open house at a condo building that was built thirty years ago, yeah, it's your job prior to going to that open house. Just look at the MLS sheet, well, and you, or not, you or you can just see it. Like sometimes people ask you, you know, what I was just saying was this: you don't need to say. This is $6,822 tax. You can say it's around, it's around $6,000 tax. Uh, so people can just, you can round it up. But when people say, I don't know, can you take a look? It's just, it's a bad taste that people will have. It doesn't matter. If I go to a car dealership and I ask how much horsepower it is, and the guy tells me he has no idea, I'm done. It's game over. Exactly. So it's not selling them, it's having being, being ready. Most... Uh, Condo again, back to the condo yeah. example. We sh- you should be able to anticipate what questions are going to be asked. What's the square? You know, everybody, you know, open house buyer one hundred and one. What's the square footage? What's the assessment? What's included in the assessment? Are there any special assessments? Yeah. Has there ever been any special assessments? How um, many floors? Exactly. <laughs> um, the am- the amenity stuff. You know, if if they're make- obviously the obvious, if there's a pool and what have you, but. If there's any sort of thing, what's the parking setup? If it's a yeah. bigger building, is it is it rental or owned? Are you allowed to rent from outside? Um, is the building does the building allow investors to buy the units and rent them out or not? There's a lot. There's a, some pretty obvious questions, and again, we're we're getting into it. But this goes back to whether you're on a team or just have a mentor or having a guy like myself, like yeah. a managing broker. Hey, Joe. Um, what should I prepare for? What answers I should I be prepared for prior to doing my first open house? Yeah, and, I will, and I'll say let's get the answers to these questions so that when you know you can you can rip those off. Even if you pull out a cheat sheet, that's okay. That buyer says thank you for having the answers to my questions the day you, that I'm there, and that's how you endear yourself to these people that you know what you're talking about. Just being prepared. That's Absolutely. All. So what we're a couple of days away from February. Mm-hmm. It's 2020, new decade. Mm-hmm. That means everybody's getting after it. So last year, the market wasn't that good. Like, personally, that's how I felt. It doesn't matter if I... I don't need to tell people it's interest rates are low buy. Like, they, like buyers and consumers, based on election year, the way they feel, a lot of them still tell me, I feel like there's a recession coming. But I've been hearing that for five years from same people. And yep. like, well, I don't know what they're waiting on. And I see there's two types of people. Either you're going to buy or sell, right? You, like, it, sometimes you can't wait for the market, you just have to make a decision based on personal reasons. That's, that's right. You alluded to that. Like we'd say, the market was tough. 
But when someone asks you a question about how's the market, you should you shouldn't just say good, bad, or whatever. yeah. Depends if you're a buyer or seller. Exactly. Depends on where you live. It depends yeah. on what you're looking at. What type of property you're looking at. The, the, that that question is um, is 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 your opportunity to show that you know more than the average Joe about the real estate business. So if I was doing a 60-second video to talk to my sphere about what the market is and what like this year is looking like and how was the month of January, what is your outlook and what do you think is going to happen and how is the market going to go? So there, there are people with lots of different opinions. My personal opinion is we are mirroring right now what happened last election, which is 2016. If Back in 2016, the first half of the year was very busy for our buyers and sellers. There was a lot of transactional business going on, which is which which was positive, again, depending on where you live. Why does that happen, though? Um, you know... Like, in just general. Like I wish why, I had just, the answer to Just because there's an election happening, like, why are they, go, like, going crazy? Like, nothing's going to drastically change. Like, whenever something... Well, that's the thing. So right now, like... Here's the answer to that question. We know what the rules are right now. We know what the laws are right now. We know what the uh, uh, you know the uh, uh, capital gains tax. All the, we know what they are now. Yeah. Depending on what happens in the election coming up in November, we may not. They may change. Sure. Right now, we know what they are. So if I'm buying, I know exactly what I'm. I getting. know what I'm getting into. So I may, might as well. I better buy now. Yeah. Or sell, because I know what's happening now. I may not know what happens, and I may not like what happens in November, so I better take care. That's one part of it. That's one part of it. Um, what I also see is, you know, we used to use, I hate to say, you know, we always, but there is a quote-unquote spring market, and the spring market traditionally means you're going to move in spring if you were a buyer or a seller. Yeah. So that around February 1st or so, you're, Super Bowl you're looking thing, into it. You're starting to get things, you know, things really start ramping up. Well, January 2nd, in our office here in Lincoln Park, there was tons of activity. Most of the brokers were here on, on January 2nd working because either they had their own sphere of influence calling them and saying, I'm ready to go right away. Or they had they had potential sellers that said, we want to get this thing on the market before everybody else does on February 1st, so let's get it going. Or brokers are doing a good job of re- reaching out to their sphere and saying, what are you thinking about this year? Like, as a matter of fact, I do want to move. So to what to me, it seems like it's actually happening probably thirty days ahead of the ahead of normal quote unquote normal schedule. Yeah. And eighty five percent of the brokers in our office that I've asked are happily busy. They got lots of going on. There's a little bit of still shortage of inventory in the in, in the in the downtown area proper. It depends on what you're looking for. If you're in the very very high end in like Gold Coast and Lincoln Park, it's still, you know, it's still a challenge to be a seller right now because there's a lot of stuff on the market for, you know, $3 million and above, it's a lot of money. But most of us aren't in that wheelhouse. Absolutely. The stuff that is, you know, three and four and $500,000, condos or maybe some smaller houses a little bit further west, that's really, really popular right now. And if you could, you know, if you could find one, they're selling very, very quickly. You know, less than two weeks, three weeks. Yeah. The turnout's great. So, that's still a challenge to some degree, the, the inventory. Um, but the affordability is still really, really, really good. Again, not knowing what's going to happen after November. Mm-hmm. The interest rate thing, people that are your age, you never knew anything other than what the interest rates are. Yeah, I, I, you know? I mean, three, like the norm is 4%. 3 to 4 to 5%. And I hate to be dropping this old man thing, but 
years ago, the threat of double-digit interest rates was not a threat. I mean, it was a real thing. Yeah. Recession or not recession, it was like crazy numbers. But even in a non-recessionary, you know, 6.5% for, for, for a mortgage, 7.5% for a mortgage wasn't yeah. outrageous. There is, there's a certain whole, like the millennial population has never seen that in their life. They're like, what are you talking about? Money's, yeah. money's always cheap. Yeah. So there's no pressure to buy necessarily. But the, for those that are sort of more, um, uh, I guess, uh, in tune with that or whatever, they do realize that right now affordability is really pretty good with, with low, cheap money. Um, and all these rental buildings, and you can just get everything you want, and then it's easier to just spend two thousand dollars a month than dropping twenty five thousand to thirty thousand as a down payment, and then being committed. Because yeah. that that's the last thing we do is being committed. Sixty percent <laughs> of the population right now is under the age of sixty. Now that doesn't bring it to the millennial, but sixty percent of the population is under sixty. So that's a lot. It is a lot. That's a lot. You know, so that there's there's a lot of um, opportunity for business for those like us in the business but they also all those people have so many different um, ways to satisfy what they're looking to do you know again on the higher end of that they might be on the back end of what they're trying to do downsizing maybe moving to maybe buying a secondary home in in Florida or California or some other Mexico some other so speaking of downsizing do you think the suburb market's ever going to come back because it's 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 been brutal for all suburbs I mean, the great ones, like right now, especially because we're talking in Chicago right now, I think Lake Forest, like those types of suburbs, they took a big hit. Like people are taking at least 25 to 30% losses there when they're trying to sell anything and inventory is in record high. It, it is weird. I, I, you know, I, I actually wonder about that. Part of that is the, socio, the socioeconomic climate. It's like they want to, they, whatever, who they are. Yeah. Let's say back in the day, the, those that wanted to go to Lake Forest and, and live in this giant, giant house, they, maybe they used to work downtown or live downtown, and as they got married and had children, whatever, they wanted to go get a piece of land and a big, giant house. That was the dream. It was a dream. Well, I think even even those people that are getting in that position that are doing really, really well financially, whatever, they, for whatever reasons, are just choosing, like, you know what? I like living in the city. And I don't need that much space. And I don't need that much space. So a smaller house near nearby, maybe a condo instead, those giant, giant houses, there's just there's just less interest in having a big giant house. And you have to drive forty five miles to go get to that house. And the upkeep of it upkeep and everything it and the taxes forever. there are insane as well. So it is really wild. I think that that's gonna be continue to be a challenge in the long term. Um it's just the trend is smaller homes. Yeah. Closer into the into the, into the now Lake Forest is not like it's in like in the middle of nowhere. One of the big what you talk about the sales market. If you like back in the day when they were building like crazy, they were building homes in um, Manuka. If you're in Chicago, it's like far 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 southwest suburb or. Um, way out west in southern Naperville, yeah. or all these places, and they would just build all these track homes that were really inexpensive, but they, they overbuilt it so much, and people, and people were like, I don't want to live all the way out there, especially yeah. in a home that looks just like the one that down the street or every single one in my community. That's I don't think that's going to come back anytime soon either. They were selling tons of houses for like $200,000. That's not going to happen, because no one wants to live all the way. I shouldn't say that. Not that many people want to live that far away from the hub of business and entertainment and all that kind of stuff to live in a, in a sort of quote-unquote basic house. The Lake Forest thing, 
It's an, it's an anomaly. I don't know that it's going to come back around for these big giant homes that are out there. So last couple of questions before we wrap this up. Uh, a neighborhood that you think is the next up and coming in Chicago? Um, I, it's so funny. I'm going to answer that, but I also going to say, but again, being around long enough, I remember having that question asked and everyone was talking about Logan Square. That's where it's going to happen. And it took... 20 years before it really did finally happen. Yeah. So it's like, it's really hard, you know, it's really hard to predict that. Yeah. It really is. Even for... Um, Everybody's been talking about Pilsen for the last decade since I've like just randomly walked around. Right. Because West Loop was an anomaly. Right. So I think you're, I think you're right, you know, it's almost like... Um, uh, it's uh, guessing the it's weather. Self-fulfilling self-fulfill- prophecy. If I own a lot of property in Pilsen, I hope it better gets there. Spread the word that like, hey, Pilsen is where it's at. And sometimes <laughs> people li- sometimes people listen, and sometimes sometimes yeah. they don't. Uh, Pullman, on the, and then near South Side, Pullman is a neighborhood that Bridgeport near Bridgeport. Well, it's kind of be, yeah, it's a little bit um, further south. Nor- it's a little bit north, north of, uh, uh, of no. I'm sorry, it's south of Bridgeport, like yeah, hundred and hundred eleventh and the highway over there. There is. There's a lot of activity down there. I, I think Amazon is c- close to confirming a deal that they're going to open a big center down there where they're going to have 300 people. So Pullman is maybe a name that you may not have heard of that I'm going to throw out there that's potential. It has a lot of opportunity because it's very, very inexpensive. Is it there. also an opportunity zone? I'm sure parts of it are. Parts of it has to yeah, be, right? Yeah, parts of it are. Yeah. So there's a lot of action down. And at this Amazon thing, which everything gets attracted to, you know. Like for sure. It's like that. could so be great. That may be something that you haven't heard of in the past, but for sure, Pilsen, it's already really hopping down there. It's pretty cool. Um, uh, um, Avondale is one that you may or may not have heard. Avondale is basically like um, Belmont and um, uh, about... Um, Kenzie? Yeah, Kedzie, but kind of Belmont and Kedzie. It's kind of a nice. There's a decent, decent uh, differential of uh, different housing stock. It's pretty nice. You could buy a single family house over there for fairly inexpensive, around four or five hundred thousand dollars. It's close to the highway. There's a there's a Blue Line stop at Belmont and uh, Kimball. So that's actually kind of a cool little spot over there that is pretty popular. I've I've seen a lot of transaction going going over there. So Avondale and then Pullman on the south side. Um, um, is something to keep an eye on. Okay, that's good to hear. So, final words, any wisdom you want to drop on these folks? Um, be, um, I, you know, as you, be ravenous about information. Like, just ask anybody that you possibly can about what they see happening. It's just kind of what you're doing here. What, you, you take it all in and then you put it into your own uh, you know, equation. But ask everybody what's going on um, before you make any decisions and trust the professional when it comes down to actually pulling the trigger on buying or selling because it really is a big decision and you don't want to go into it alone. Yeah, and the last thing you want is people to go around saying that you don't know what you're talking about because it happens all the time. That's right. Well, here we go, folks. Here was another episode of Think Small, Do Big. Joe, appreciate it. Always thank you. Thank you. And take care, and we'll see you next time.